You're listening to There Auto Be a Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. Hope you enjoyed the ride. Kit, there's no one inside here. Michael, that's impossible. A car doesn't drive by itself. Doesn't it? Whether it's uh, Johnny Cab from the movie Total Recall, it's Knight Rider and Kit, or it's Herbie the Love Bug, for decades we've been hearing about self-driving cars, how these are the next big things. And I've honestly been expecting it for quite some time. It doesn't help especially when this guy starts speaking. But eventually, all cars will be self-driving. But we're not going to talk about Teslas, because I, I hate to break it to you, they don't actually make full self-driving cars. They don't make autonomous vehicles. You know, they make adaptive cruise control, just like everybody else. I know, some of you are very disappointed. But in today's episode, I'm going to dive into more and find out really what are autonomous vehicles, how long has this been around, Where are we now, and what might the future look like? So sit back and enjoy. Hi, Anthony. This is Jeff Wishart. I'm with the Arizona Commerce Authority and the Science Foundation Arizona, um, the State Economic Development Agency, and a nonprofit research organization under under the ACA. I'm also adjunct faculty at Arizona State University in the automotive systems concentration. So can you walk us through kind of the history of AVs? Because it goes back much further than, than... you know, the early 2000s. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, automated vehicles have been with us really since ancient times in some ways, right? Sailboats, you could argue the first automated vehicle with the auto tiller, a weather vane connected to the tiller with ropes to keep the sailboat traveling on a single course, even if the wind shifts. So you could consider that as the maybe the, the origin story of, of the automated vehicle. Um, but the idea of a of a a ground vehicle automation really came about in comic books and science fiction novels starting around 1935. So Norman Belgetti's of GM um, presented his vision of automated vehicles in his Futurama ride at New York's World Fair in 1939. So his vision included speed and collision control similar to railroads and trenches to keep vehicles in the lanes. Um, obviously, the compute at the time was made this kind of uh, fantastical and not really feasible at the time. But the benefits of automated vehicles uh, were even were known then, right? Reduced need for downtown parking, reduced collisions, higher efficiency, road density, road, uh, reduced congestion, and even more family time uh, was known. So there's a picture that's uh, that they published of a family playing a board game in their car as they're driving down the road. So these kinds of the concept has been around since the 30s, um, and so quite some time. The um, I guess the, the development of the digital computer in the 1950s and 60s really began to allow that uh, the technology to catch up with the ambition. So the first efforts were allowed uh, cockroach-like motion, so sensing, processing, and reacting. Um, they were possible. The sensing and, and process and reacting were possible with technology back in, in those times, but the machine intelligence of the processing step wasn't there. So we really couldn't do everything that we needed in terms of the the path planning, the perception and path planning. You could sense something was there, but deciding what it was and what to do about it, uh, it was not there. 
So then comes uh, Stanford comes around and they they're one of the pioneers of robotics in the 60s and 70s. And they one of the things they did was the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Cart, which is a uh, little robot uh, cart that could could sense and, and do a lot of the the automated vehicle functions um, to a reasonably reasonable degree. But when it comes to an automated vehicle on the road, the pioneer, I don't know if I call him the inventor, but the pioneer is probably Ernst Stickmans of Germany. Um, so he, in 1980, he had a Mercedes van that was packed with computers, able to travel hundreds of, of miles uh, automated driving uh, over in Europe. And he developed a few of these vehicles starting in 1980 into the 90s. Um, coming over to the US, I think the first one that I've seen was the Carnegie Mellon NavLab 5 teams automated vehicle. It, it traveled from Pittsburgh to San Diego, average above 60 uh, miles per hour, and 98% of the journey, which was almost 3,000 miles, was completed via automated driving. So you can see they were able to, to accomplish a lot even back in the 90s uh, before a lot of the, the machine intelligence really took off. Um, but it's that last 2% that's very difficult. Um, so that's the kind of beginnings of, of the automated vehicle industry. That final 2% that Jeff just mentioned, that's a recurring theme when you talk to people in the autonomous vehicle industry. It's that little technical hurdle. I mean, it sounds little, but it's, a, it's, it's seemingly insurmountable. And to find out a little bit more about that final little hurdle, we're going to turn to Philip Copeland. Because coming into this, I remember 10 years ago telling my kid, I was like, your generation won't even have to learn how to drive these things. I, I believed the hype and whatnot. And then, oh, man, you drank, you drank the whole gallon of Kool-Aid, didn't I, you? I totally <laughs> did. I'm Phil Copeman. I'm a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. I've been working on self-driving car safety for more than 25 years. So that's before the DARPA Grand Challenge, before all that stuff. There was a project called the Automated Highway System back in the 90s, and I was the CMU safety guy on that project. Yeah, I was I was like, this this is, of course, why couldn't they drive themselves? Yeah. And then uh, as the more time I've spent on this, I'm a lot of arguments you see on this is, well, you can just get into your car, fall asleep, read a book, watch a movie, wake up, you're at your destination. And in my mind, I'm like, that's well, a bus. You can actually do that today. The problem, and people think they, 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 people feel justified in doing that today. We've seen videos of people doing that today. The problem is you don't always wake up alive at your destination. I mean, that's the issue, right? Let's go back before I'm falling asleep in my car and hopefully waking up at my destination. So from the 90s, you went into the early 2000s with something called the DARPA Grand Challenge. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. That was like a next generation of researchers and and they had to relearn a lot of the same lessons. So we knew back in the 90s that if you gave the driver automated steering, they were going to tune out. And and Waymo apparently had to learn that from themselves and said, oh, who knew? It's like, well, we, we were trying to tell you and you didn't listen to us. You know? <laughs> That's not literally, well, it's almost true, but, but you get the idea. <laughs> we won't go into conversations, but, <laughs> but you know, but we knew all these things back in the 90s and they were rediscovered. And that now, to be sure, there was a big change with the DARPA Grand Challenge and Urban Challenge. The technology had progressed. The computing had progressed. So the very first NAP lab, when I was a grad student, I was walking through the park on my way to, to teach my 8 a.m. recitation as a TA, as a teaching assistant, and I assure you the students were not happy. But I would walk past NAV Lab 1, which was this like big bread truck 
full of computers with roaring fans creeping down to the sidewalk at one mile an hour, you know? <laughs> so things have changed dramatically. Right. Uh, and a lot of it's just more computer, but also the whole advent of machine learning really, really made a difference. It made a lot of things possible that, that they hadn't figured out. Um, but machine learning statistical. And statistics are great at 99.9. They have a lot of trouble with 0.00000. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to count the right number of 1%. Statistics aren't terribly great at that, but that's where safety lives. Okay. So that 0.0001 event. What, not, what not, not near enough zeros. Yeah. Okay. Uh, good. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> There's a limited amount of time of me. We're just having fun. Years. We're just having fun. Right. <laughs> so these rare events that yeah. humans seem to be okay with. Um, Humans are uh, remarkably good. They're not perfect, but they're remarkably good. Okay. So what's an example, like a common example where these AV, these computer systems fail? Well, well, there's a, a story and, and the stories I can give you have mostly been fixed because I've told the stories and people have heard they fixed them. So, but you know, this story that when Waymo was starting, they said, uh, we're not going to worry about construction zones because they're rare. <laughs> okay. And on an individual driver for any particular hour of driving, unless you're on certain places of interstates in July, you know, during road destruction season, right? You know, unless you're in those places, construction uh, is really rare. Accident scenes, crash scenes are really rare. Uh, but 99% doesn't even get you in the ballpark of stuff that every driver has seen many, many, many times. So the first hurdle is getting past the stuff that is rare on an hourly basis, but not rare on a driver year basis. Okay. okay. You know, one driver in one year can expect to see a lot of stuff, right? Uh, and the car companies are basically sort of there, uh, you know, not driving into wet concrete, uh, stopping at school buses, uh, being able to handle police stop without running away from the police officer. And, you know, I'm, I'm calling back to several events that have been in the news. Okay. Yeah. Or, or, or tragically having a, hitting a pedestrian arguably through no fault of their own. There's an interesting discussion about defensive driving, but let's just say when Cruz hit that that poor woman, it wasn't mm -hmm. their fault. Let's just say that, okay? Because uh, that that's mostly true. Sure. Um, and um, then losing track that there's a person trapped under your car and deciding to move the car. I got to interrupt Phil here for a second and explain a little bit more about what he's talking about. What he's talking about is an incident that happened in San Francisco where an autonomous vehicle dragged a woman. And to start that story off, we have to meet this guy. This is Kyle Vogt. Well, thanks for having me, Emily. Fortunately, you know, our vision remains unchanged. We're still working on bringing driverless cars uh, to deployment at scale. And it's been a really exciting year for, year for us. Just in the last few months, we did our first driverless rides on, a, on public roads in a major U.S. city. It's a first for any company. We've got really ambitious plans to scale from here uh, to be in you know, more locations, more cities, and make a really great product. Kyle for recorded this about four months ago. Two months after that, he was out of a job. Quoting from the Washington Post, on October 2nd, 2023, a pedestrian crossing a busy intersection was struck by a regular car Monday night and hurled beneath a cruise autonomous vehicle where she was trapped for several minutes. The cruise vehicle then dragged this woman for 20 feet. The problem is GM Cruise didn't share their footage and the full details of what happened to investigators. Later, investigators found out, and this is what led GM Cruz's demise. Now back to my conversation with Philip Copeman. 
Well, that's a different problem. That that may not have happened to anyone who's listening to this. I hope not, because that's the, I don't want to be that driver. Okay, but many people listening to this probably have been involved in a pedestrian collision because that does happen. And the first time you're involved in a pedestrian collision, an ordinary person now people people will just freak out and do something crazy. That happens with a small likelihood. I, I get that because people are people, right? But most people will stop the car and say. I just hit someone. Let's say I get out and take a look before I decide to move my car out of traffic. And the cruise vehicle didn't do that. So that's kind of an inhuman mistake. And that's the kind of thing that that it's never happened to any of those cars before, you know, that that they've hit and decided, well, actually there was a fatality in, in, in Tempe, Arizona. So there have been a few, but this is the first time one decided to move even though they had hit someone. Uh, because they decided it was a side hit instead of a front hit, and you know because reasons. But mm-hmm. it's like, what in the world are you doing, moving your car without actually being sure where the person is? Uh, and so you could say they've never seen it before, but a person would probably get that right. So people are pretty good about reasoning and about novelty. And machine learning is all about, well, did I train on the data? No, I don't know what to do. Yeah. So for situations like that, these edge cases. How much training needs to happen in there? Because any any sixteen year old with a learner's permit would think to, hey, I'm going to stop the car. I think I just hit something. I'm going to go see what it is I hit. Stopping the car sounds like a real good idea. Yeah, right. So, but right. so I mean, it, it, you know, as a normal sixteen year old, even someone younger than that would do that. As a human, how much training would a would a machine learning system need for it to understand these things? Well, it depends how you go at it, but. The naive approach, the straightforward approach is if there's a situation you want it to handle, you find a bunch of examples of that situation, like thousands of them, maybe fewer, depend- there's a lot of it depends. If it's seen stuff close, maybe not as few, but but it's not one or two, it's lot. You, know, you show it lots of examples and it pulls out statistical numbers about what to do in those situations and statistics means lots, right? You, you right. don't do statistics off one thing, okay? Uh, I, there's a thing called one-shot learning. There, there, there's a bunch of cool things you can apply. So I'm going baseline. Um, you showed a whole bunch, hundreds, thousands of examples, and it learns. But where do you get hundreds or thousands of examples of collision people? We have to use a simulator, and now you have to make sure what it's learning from the simulator is what it should have learned if it were real. And and did it learn off some weirdness or artifact or simplification of the simulator that it will translate poorly to the real world? So now you have a testing obligation. It's really hard to do this. So stuff they see all the time, you know, this is why the 98% is easy because you see it all the time. You got plenty of examples. And the rare things that are high consequence is harder because you don't have that many examples. And and so what do they do? They spend a lot of resources going to test tracks. They spend a lot of resources. You know, Waymo in particular years ago had this big um, this big effort uh, where they would set up. Uh, uh, they would collect data. They would have a closed course track. They'd recreate things, and then they'd use that as the basis for a big simulation campaign. I mean, that that's what in, what's involved to do this right. And the other companies since have started doing things like that. But someone has to think about it. If no one ever thought of that and it's not in the simulator, you're not going to learn it. And ultimately, there are a lot of aspects of safety, but ultimately the limit to safety of this technology is that if no one ever thought of it, you never trained it, it's probably going to get it wrong when it happens for real. Whereas people are astoundingly good at most of the time getting it right, even though it's a complete surprise. 
So with what we're talking about, these are what SAE would call level four, level five autonomous vehicles, where the human's not in control ever and the machine's driving it the whole time, right? Well, oh, yeah, the levels well, have so yeah, many skipping problems. That, we're just but, as yeah. a very high level. <laughs> I, I did it. I said the thing that no one wants to hear. Levels. levels. So... I'm going to turn to uh, Fred Perkins to explain SAE levels. Hi, my name is Fred Perkins. I'm the chief engineer at the Center for Auto Safety. Help me understand what these SAE levels are. All right. SAE J3016, which is a report, not a standard, uh, lays out different levels of automation for vehicles just to make it convenient so people know what they're, you know, they have a common understanding of what they, what they are. There are six levels. Level zero is basically any car or truck made before 1980 and uh, any later cars that include things like ABS and automatic uh, emergency braking or blind spot detection, things that give you information but do not actually control the car. So they're not considered automated controls. Uh, level one is a vehicle that it has exactly one feature, either automatic steering or adaptive cruise control, for example that controls either the speed of the car or the direction the car is headed in. Level two is any vehicle that has more than one. So it would have adaptive cruise control and it would have uh, lane keeping assistance, for example. And so because they're, they're combined, that moves it up from level one to level two. Okay, so real quick. So that's what most modern cars are. They are level two. Like my car is not a fancy car. It has lane keeping assist and automatic cruise control. Yeah, so yeah essentially two. any car you're going to buy today would be a level two car. Uh, okay. and There may be exceptions, but so yeah, it's very common. Okay. And this is essentially what Tesla sells. I just want to clear that up for people because they call it full self-driving, but it's just lane keeping and, and automatic cruise control, uh, according well, to the lawyers yeah, anyway. Kind of, sort of. Uh, but the thing is, the uh, Tesla pushes the edge of this because these are intended to be things that happen, uh, not self-driving. So uh, after a couple of seconds in my car, I get a warning that says, get your hands back on the wheel or, you know, do something. Uh, Tesla, though, will allow people to go for a long time, minutes or miles, uh, essentially with having the car do self-control, which was not really the intention of level two. That was really the intention of level three. So, so the kind of hedging things on that. And again, it's a report. It's not a SEJ3016 is a report, not a standard. So nobody has to conform to it. It's just information. Okay. So level three self-driving capabilities designed for extended duration of uh, both speed and steering control in the car. But it has a requirement that if it ever fails, or if you ever get a notice from the car, you the human being has to take over immediately. Uh, this is a huge problem, as you can imagine, if you were distracted because you've been going along for miles, reading a book, picking your nose, whatever you're doing, all of a sudden the car has a failure. You're supposed to jump in and figure out what's going on. Very, very difficult. People do a poor job of this. Um, it's a very difficult thing to do. But if you have enough money, you can get that in a Mercedes right now. You can get that in a Mercedes. You can get that. In th I think BMW's got that. But it's very restricted. It's only for basically stop and go traffic on limited access highways. It is available, 
but uh, you won't go far and you won't go far fast. So level four is uh, self-driving, meaning you've got both speed control and you've got steering control, but it's within a specific operational design domain, which is a combination of geography and traffic conditions and time of day and all those kind of things for which the car is designed. Now, you may need human control outside of the ODD. For example, let's say the ODD covers interstate highways. You may need to have a human control to drive the car to the interstate highway. But once it's on the interstate highway, at level four, there's no need for additional human control. It's designed to have emergency fallback provisions that will stop the car safely or put it into a safe state. So the human can, in fact, read a book at that point or pick your nose as long as you want. So that'll be just fine at level four. And this is what we see as uh, robo-taxis out in Arizona and San Francisco. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. But they're considered experimental still, I, I want to point out. But uh, Yeah, level four. But no individual person can go out and buy a level four car right now. Just want to make that point. right? So these are strictly experimental the vehicles that are owned and operated by the companies that are developing the vehicles, the Waymos, the, you might say Tesla, who knows about that one, <clears throat> but the Cruise, and uh, but I think there's a, several others out there, but those are the major ones. So level five is uh, Nirvana. It's unattainable. It's no human control is needed. Uh, Self-driving, unlimited operational design domain, unlimited conditions, unlimited time of day. So that will probably never happen. Uh, people are designing for that in certain circumstances, but it's kind of like an extended level four where they just forgot to put in the steering wheel and the brakes. So I don't think. And that's what we see in the movies. That's what we that's see in like the movies. My mother, the car, all those kind of things. Yeah. Um, great stuff, but it'll probably never happen. Levels. <laughs> Levels. Yeah, I'm getting rid of all my furniture. All of it. And I'm going to build these different levels, you know, with steps. And it'll all be carpeted. All right. Do we all understand levels now? Great. Let's go back to Phil. What? Yes. We'll take that as red. Yes. Well, also level three, because level three, the person's right. been told they don't have to watch the road. So right. when activated to level three, is, which is the, right. the, like the traffic jam pilot stuff, you know, if if the driver has been told you don't have to watch the road, it's all the same as far as I'm concerned. Either the computer's driving and the person's driving and watching, and the person's not watching, right. guess what? It's all so on the computer. My question around this is, so level two, which is, uh, you know, it, it means a, a wide range of things, but my simple car has level two systems. It has lane keeping assist. It has uh, adaptive cruise control. It has automatic emergency braking. Right. Works. Okay. Pretty good, kind of good. And so what I'm wondering is like, no one's gotten automatic emergency braking. Like it hasn't been defined well, it seems, and it doesn't work in all cases. Shouldn't things like that, or even just lane keeping assist, like my car gets confused when I'm on the highway and an exit's coming up because it loses sight lines for a bit. Shouldn't those pieces be solved before taking the leap to, you know, humans not involved at all? Well, if you want to spend money funding a level four robo taxi company, you know, our capitalist society lets you do that. So, so the, the reality is, 
what's your objective? If your objective is to make running money running a, a cheaper taxi service, then robotaxis are the, what you invest in, and and that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. If your objective is to improve road safety, robotaxi seems like an awfully expensive way to going about it, given that we already have proven ways of, proven, of improving road safety that you don't have to invent the new technology for. So it depends what your objective is. Okay. <laughs> Got and it, and the, the thing is, if it's if it's their money, they get to spend it. You know, we're back to capitalism. They can, they're, no one's re, they're not there to improve road safety. They're there to make money. Right. And so telling them you should spend your money on road safety instead of making money, that's a non-starter in our society. And and I'm I'm also okay with that. So people say we should spend this money on X. It's like, well, it's their money. Don't tell them how to spend it. You know, that's not how it works in this country. Right. But a lot of these companies, they make the argument that these are safer than people. So they are kind of selling, saying, hey, this is safer. Well, okay. So that's a whole different thing. It's okay. you're spending your money and what are you selling? And they're not they're not in this business. They aren't raising billions of dollars to save lives. Uh, you know, I. They're raising billions of dollars to make money, right? That and that's okay. Again, that's okay. That's our society. Now they're saying you should let us take these risks as we develop the technology because we promise to save lives. Okay, that's interesting, because there's no data to show that they will save lives. In fact, the very latest report. Um, from Waymo, the seven million mile report, which, by the way, their technical stuff is is fine. Their their public relations messaging, I have an issue with, but their technical stuff is fine. Their report very clearly says seven million miles is not enough data to know how how fatalities are going to turn out, and that's absolutely right. Because at hundred million miles between, it's like seven million down, ninety three more million to go before we have any idea how this turns out, uh, and and that's where we are. So if you want to say. We want to save lives, so you should give us money to spend developing this technology. That's great. If you want to say, we know that our technology, now to be clear, this company is not saying this, but this is something one could say. I'm doing it for a fact. You should let us kill people now because someday we're going to save lives. <laughs> the problem is the someday we're going to save lives part is completely speculative and hypothetical. So the more nuanced messages that they're actually saying are, you should look the other way if we disrupt traffic and, and a bunch of other things. It's like, well, because we're saying, you know, you should look the other way and, and put up with inconveniences and these uh, interfering with emergency responders and all the things that have been happening. You know, you should put up with all that stuff because we're saving lives. It's like, well, no, you should put up with the stuff because they hope that they will save lives. And the distinction matters from a public policy point of view. Yeah, do they they actually believe they're going to save lives? They actually really believe it and they have a lot of arguments why they think that will turn out. But it hasn't turned out yet, so we don't know. Right. So how do you see the best systems, these best AV systems compared to responsible human drivers today? So we take out well, all the drunks, we take out all the texters. How well, we... well, you're up at what? 200 250 million miles per fatality now. So <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, it's very hard to do I, those are those are approximate numbers it's very hard to do that math as it turns out. So I've that's not an accurate number, but it's okay. I mean, it's, it's a lot better. Well, we don't know because we've only got one company has 7 million miles, you know, 243 million more about to go before we have something like 70% confidence at. We don't know how it's going to turn out now. And, and the, um, in fact, I was just having this conversation with someone just before this. Okay. There's a, there's a balance that if you teach the computer to drive in a safer, saner, better way, Okay, that will improve outcomes. 
But if the computer driver has software anomalies or hits things it can't handle too often or just does bizarre, there's a bad software update and 10 cars crashed that day because it was a bad update. And we've just seen bad updates be in the news, right? You know, right. that's how computers fail. They fail a whole bunch at once. And, and you know, you had a lot of good days. You have one bad day. It's going to take a whole bunch more good days to make up for that. And nobody knows how that balance is going to turn out. So are they safer? Well, they have the potential to be safer. And in the small on an everyday basis, there's gathering data showing that for low severity stuff, they can be safer. Uh, but jury's still out on what what they're selling, but they're not selling that. They're selling, we're going to reduce fatality. They're selling, look at all the fatalities. Well, if you want to judge them on the thing they're selling, the answer is nobody knows. Okay, so from Jeff, we've learned how far autonomous vehicles have come. And Phil's given us a lot more insight into that last hard bit of how they've developed and and how they're operating today. But but if they can't prove the thing that they're claiming, that, hey, we're going to be better than humans, then how, how are these things getting on the road? I don't understand it. So let's go back to Fred Perkins. So right now as a human to get a driver's license, or better example for, for robo-taxis is to become a bus driver. Like, you need training. You need a commercial driver's license. Uh, they just don't grab anybody randomly off the street and say, you're now a bus driver responsible for these 60 passengers. That's uh, correct. Yeah. But if I want to be an autonomous taxi company, a robo taxi company, I don't have to prove anything. Do correct I? Again. Yeah, that's right. What so, you have to do is, well, you have to go to the state uh, authorities in whatever state you want to operate in and uh, make a case that your car is safe enough to go and uh, somebody will look at that and say yay or nay, and uh, if they say yay, then you're good to go. The problem is these are very complex, and if there's no framework for the states to audit these vehicles and auto the, audit the safety of these vehicles, it's an extremely difficult engineering challenge to go in and figure out if they, in fact, do have enough safety. Um, the standards that have been written typically are very loose. They will often say something like, uh, safety means the absence of unreasonable risk, period. What does so that what the mean? Hell, what, <laughs> right. What does that mean? What is, what's reasonable and what's not reasonable? And what they're really doing is they're throwing the whole problem over to the courts to decide after the fact whether an injury was caused by an unreasonable amount of risk or a reasonable amount of risk. So it's, uh, it's a real problem from that perspective. reasonable risk I don't know I think it's time for me to call in the big guns to call in the lawyer Michael Brooks I am Michael Brooks I'm the executive director at the Center for Auto Safety Michael I've was just talking to Fred and I asked him how is it these things are getting on the road and and you're a lawyer and from that policy point of view how is it possible that my kid had to take a written driver's test, had to take a physical driver's test and prove all sorts of things, get insurance. But I can say, hey, I'm a robo taxi service. Let me free. Well, I mean, there's there's not a lot out there that's going to keep a company that's 
wanting to put these vehicles on the road out. Um, there are some state laws that require them to have insurance, you know, basically requiring them to prove that if there's a big problem or a crash that they, you know, have the money to, you know, assist victims or that type of thing. They're basically just making sure that, you know, this is an an actual legitimate company that's coming onto the scene with this this uh, fancy new vehicle that drives itself. Uh, other than that, you know, there are no federal laws that prohibit the deployment of autonomous vehicles. Um, they do have to meet, you know, passenger vehicles do have to meet the federal motor vehicle safety standards, um, none of which address automated vehicles or any of the systems that are involved in the the driving that computers will be doing in those vehicles. So it's a, you know, it's basically the Wild West at this point. Um, you know, California has, you know, taken somewhat limited steps to require some uh, crash reporting of, of sorts. Um, and the federal government has done the same thing in its standing general order. So they're, you know, keeping tabs on incidents. But, you know, none of that's going to prevent you from from building one of these things today and, and putting it right out on the road and offering it as a service. Um, there's just not a lot of real high bars. You, you don't have to prove without a doubt that your vehicle, your autonomous vehicle is safe before you put it on the road. Right now, to drive a car, I mean, I imagine the federal guidelines say, hey, there has to be a driver in the driver's seat. Are they getting some exemption saying, now we're not going to have a driver? Now, there's, there, you know, while, while federal regulations are written with the assumption that there's a human driver in the driver's seat, um, there's no requirement for such a thing. <laughs> oh, no. That's, that's disturbing and frightening. Well, it's, it sounds so obvious that, you know, but it's, but it's, you know, it's, I guess it was so obvious to, when they're drafting these things that it's something you don't need to require. I mean, of course a car is going to be driven by a human. But some of these companies have tried to want to put out cars that don't have steering wheels and brake pedals and gas pedals. Right. Like, so I, that, if I need an exemption, right, that's, okay. that's where, that's where if you're going to do something that's required by federal motor vehicle safety standards, you're going to have to try to get an exemption. And, you know, no one has really attempted to use those provisions. We've seen a couple of exemption petitions filed and withdrawn for uh, vehicles. I, I believe the latest was the GM origin or the, the cruise origin. Um, which kind of that that plan kind of fell apart in the wake of what happened with Cruz. But, you know, there's there's not been a lot of manufacturers coming forward and saying they want to build their own vehicle from scratch. A lot of these systems are being put into vehicles that are already being built to meet motor vehicle safety standards. You know, you see uh, GM Cruz using the GM vehicles that are, already ready to go on the safety standards and you see waymo using a variety of vehicles some some chrysler vehicles some jaguars um there's they're they're basically a lot of these companies just using vehicles that are already meant to be driven by a human and putting in an interface over that 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 makes it an autonomous vehicle so we've learned there's no that it is the wild west there's no real standards around how these things should operate, what they should do. What is the Center for Auto Safety doing to 
try and make it so, hey, there's some base level requirements? Basically, what we're doing, and, and um, you know, we see a vehicle being deployed by crews that completely ignores a big chunk of safety, which is post-crash safety. And, you know, I, I think what, what our role is in that process is just making sure that the public, that policymakers, that, you know, folks in the government are aware of some of these gaping safety issues that exist in the autonomous vehicle industry. Uh, they make a lot of promises, uh, not just GM Cruise, but Waymo has been, you know, saying this is coming around the corner since the uh, 2015, 2016 or so. When I got an opportunity to ride in one, they said they would be, you know, operating in 2017. Well, you know, they're they're they are, you know, at this point, Waymo is still operating in some you know, certain very small areas of the country, and they plan to expand. But this, you know, robo taxi revolution is not really happening. And, you know, I think one of our roles in this has been to push back against all of the aspirational thinking that that goes into building these massive corporations centered on a technology that may not be mature yet. You know, there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of sound bites. There's a lot of folks with a lot of money um, putting putting that money behind advertising and behind promoting these vehicles, behind lobbying to change state and federal laws to make it easier to introduce them. And, you know, we found that, you know, our, our best role in the process is, is pushing back on a lot of that misinformation, um, these promises to communities like the disabled community that driverless cars or robo-taxis are going to save them. We don't believe that's 100% genuine. We think, you know, that the the companies have been using uh, a lot of those arguments as a front to cover up some of their deficiencies while getting them um, favorable looks from from um, the government and from people who are potentially going to regulate them. One of the big complaints we hear from AV industry is anytime there's an, an accident with one of them that they say the media blows it out of proportion. Oh my God. Yes. A robo taxi smashed into a uh, fire truck or drove into wet cement and the media has a field day with it. In my mind, that's like when there's a plane crash I mean, it's a very rare event. It shouldn't happen. It's unexpected. Um, and that's why we get surprised. So with AVs, when they have that, cause they're sold as these are better than humans. This is what's happening here. Um, we shouldn't be so surprised, but what's surprising to me is that um, the the uh, that NHTSA is not like the FAA, the the Federal Aeronautics Administration. They actually have uh, engineering guidelines. I, I say, think that's the Federal Aviation Administration. Right? <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> what? Yeah, maybe. Whatever. The, the the Federal Aviation Administration actually has engineering guidelines or regulations saying. This is how your plane should work and operate in these conditions. Yeah. Whereas NHTSA well, doesn't even, have that with cars. You know, it's it's way more specific than that, right? So the FAA has type certification, which basically means they are in the room looking at all the plans for every single part on that airplane to make sure that it is meeting uh, FAA standards. And it's kind of a pro you're essentially it's a co-certification process between the regulator and the manufacturer. You always have that regulator looking over your shoulder or you should, as we found out in some of the 737 uh, MAX 
failures. You, you should have a regulator looking over you all the time to make sure that you've got the appropriate certifications and that and that that aircraft is going to be safe. Safe with cars, you've got none of that. You've got a self-certification program that's set up that you know manufacturers have been bound to since the late '60s when NHTSA uh, was created, which basically means you are responsible for conducting tests and making sure that your vehicles match federal standards and then signing off on that. Um, the government and NHTSA may do some limited auditing to make sure that you are actually doing your homework on the backside and, and doing those certifications. But ultimately, there's, you know, there's not the collaborative process where you have a government agency ensuring and, and making sure that you're building safety into, into all of your vehicle components. Um, and, you know, at the start of that, you, you said, you know, how AV manufacturers tend to suggest that the media is overreacting. And um, I would suggest that that is, they've set that own trap for themselves. You know, no one else is out there promising that these cars are going to be better than humans. It's, it's, it's just the guys trying to sell them. And so when a car ends up in cement or runs into the back of the bus or can't tell what a fire hose is and interrupts firefighter operations or drags a pedestrian that's already been struck by another people, not another car and ends up ended up under the car. When those things happen, you know, most of us look at them and go, I would never do that. Um, that wouldn't happen to me. Why is this car that's supposed to be better than a human um, doing that? That's that's why it generates headlines, because there's such a clear contradiction between those events and the results that continually are promised to us by the AV manufacturers. And now I'm just at a loss. I, I, I'm struggling. Like, how do I wrap this episode up? There's, I've always, it's hard to wrap something like this up in a nice pretty bow. There's just far too many questions that are left to be answered. And a lot of it depends on, you know, how consumers and how the public accepts these vehicles. I mean, we've seen that they're not really willing to accept what uh, Cruise was offering in San Francisco. We saw a lot of problems there. Waymo's having a few of those similar problems and we're seeing a little pushback on them. Um, but it's, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot that's going to continue to occur in this space. And it's pretty clear right now that even the major players don't have all the answers. And it's, you know, it's a very speculative industry. And, you know, I don't know what kind of music you'd wrap the episode up with. It would be something, you know, a perplexing style music of some sort. It's, it's, it's it, 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 you know, something that leaves the listener hanging and doesn't really give them any answers because we don't have those yet. I'd like to thank today's guests, Dr. Jeffrey Wishart, Philip Copeman, Fred Perkins, and Michael Brooks. Hopefully this helped you understand a little bit more about autonomous vehicles. If you'd like to find out more information, visit autosafety.org. your high compression we're gonna be late how sad poor dad too bad we're stuck